Today we are continuing in our series on understanding the present time. Last week we began with the Apostle Paul's instruction that in light of the seriousness of our present time and the anticipation of soon seeing Jesus' face, that we should wake up, clean up, and grow up. And so now today in part two, entitled Birth Pains, The Days of Noah and Vultures, we are going to take a closer look at some of the specific signs that Jesus said will mark the end of the last age of history before his return. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again acknowledge that we are living in a troubled world. We know that you are the answer to all the world's troubles. And yet, Lord, so many don't know this. But we thank you that you have warned us in advance of what to expect, that we would not be surprised by these troubles in the world, that these signs that are increasing, like, like birth pains, Lord, that these things wouldn't um, cause us to be worried or, or think that somehow you've forgotten or abandoned us. But instead, you've given them as warnings so we know what to expect and also to know that your return is drawing near. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look again into some of these more specific signs, open our eyes to understand or to see and to understand uh, why you've warned us, what to expect, and how we are to respond in light of this. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, on the Saturday morning of October 12th, 2013, Leanne and I were making our final preparations for what would be a very busy Thanksgiving weekend. We had many things to do, services to plan for, family gatherings to get ready for, and this was what was filling our minds at that moment. But then something completely unexpected happened. I was in the living room, Leanne was in the kitchen, and suddenly she walked out from the kitchen right in front of me and said four little words that changed everything. She looked at me and said, my water just broke. Four little words and everything changed. It took me a good long moment for those words to sink in. What? What does this mean? And finally it dawned on me what this actually meant. And then all the other thoughts followed rapidly afterwards. My first being, of course, it's way too soon. This can't be happening. The, the baby's not due for another three weeks. Uh, you know, Leanne doesn't even have her overnight bag packed yet. Uh, I've got a way too busy schedule to be dealing with this right now. I've got a, a Thanksgiving service that I'm preaching at tomorrow morning. Doesn't the baby know that this is Thanksgiving weekend? You can't be coming yet. This is too soon. And all these thoughts are going through, through my head, and, and it just dawned on me that we were prepared for everything that weekend except the baby's arrival. Well, then the mad scramble began, and Leanne starts packing, you know, for the hospital, and I start making phone calls, and uh, some of you who are here were the very first ones I called, because I had to get people to fill in for me Sunday morning, I had to cancel appointments, I had to cancel a counseling session, and at this point, as as I'm on the phone and Leanne's scrambling, she's the one who actually stops and says, we should all just take a deep breath here, because remember, for most women, between... Uh, water breaking and labor beginning is four to five hours. So we have time. Let's just relax, make sure we get everything done. We'll have lots of time to get to Brandon 
and, and we'll be fine. So deep breath, that's what we did. As we're driving out of town, headed for Brandon, that is exactly when her first serious contraction hit. And then it was followed in quick succession by another and another. And now I have a disclaimer here that as a man, I'm just going to say this right now, all contractions seem serious, okay? <laughs> to me, I'm just saying that. They all seem serious. But that being said, I quickly learned that the degree to which my hand was being crushed correlated with Leanne's urgent commands to drive faster. These were clear indications to me that those four to five hours that we thought we had, well, uh, they were out the window now. And in fact, in my head, I'm thinking, we have an hour to Brandon. Is the baby coming within an hour? And so I decided to do the very thing that I think I'd been training for my whole life. I drove faster. And as her labor became heavier, so did my foot. So, in my head was one simple thought. I am not going to be one of those guys who delivers a baby on the side of the road. This is just not happening. This is not me. We are going to get there. Thankfully, we got there, safe and sound. And little Theodore Henry was born, safe and sound, in Brandon General Hospital shortly after our arrival. Now, though Leanne and I weren't prepared for Theo's sudden arrival on the scene that weekend, once those labor pains had begun, there was no stopping them. There was no delaying them. There was no saying, okay, buddy, wait two or three days until the, the busyness has passed. Once they had begun, there's no off switch. And ready or not, <laughs> here he came. And so, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 this morning, we read that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come to him privately, and they have many questions because he has been talking about what is to come. He has been talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, and their minds are buzzing with questions about this. And so they come up to him on the Mount of Olives in private, and they ask him, verse 3 of Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. I want to underline that last statement for you once more. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, as I just shared our story... Once those birth pains of child labor begin, there's no off switch. In fact, the birth pains will only increase in frequency and intensity until the child is born. And so Jesus is saying that the end of the age and his coming is to be compared to a woman going into labor. And that on the earth in those days, in that time period prior to his return, the earth's labor pains 
which he described as being things such as deceitful teaching, warfare, political strife, earthquakes, and famines, all of these things will continually increase in both their frequency and their intensity. So let me ask you the question. Are the world's labor pains getting better or worse? Are the world's troubles decreasing or increasing? What would you say? What's your knee-jerk response to that? They're getting worse, right? The labor pains are increasing in both frequency and intensity. Let me just highlight one specific example for you of something that is currently dominating the entire globe's news headlines. You all know it. I don't even need to tell you. The coronavirus and the spread of the coronavirus. We've been hearing about it for months now, but now daily it's, the news is, is just obsessed with it because it is spreading rapidly. And now it's at the point, the last report I heard, it's in over 90 countries on earth. So over half of the nations of the earth have it. And now let me just get back to scripture for a moment. In the parallel account of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 on the signs of the last times, the parallel teaching in Luke chapter 21 and verse 11, we read this one small uh, addition to Jesus' statement of those last days from the Matthew account. In Luke 21, verse 11, we read this. Jesus said, There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places. So the addition here is that term pestilence in various places. Now, the definition of the word pestilence in modern English as well as in the the, uh, original Greek that this was written in is exactly the same. The term pestilence means a deadly epidemic disease. So the word Jesus was using, the word we understand today as pestilence, is a deadly epidemic disease. Uh, In addition to that is something considered harmful to uh, a wide body of people. It's not local, it's widespread. So that's the idea of pestilence. So now, as we come back to the idea of the coronavirus... There are many arguments over just how deadly it really is. You know, what, what's the mortality rate of people who get it? Is it 1%? Is it 2%? Is it 3%? Is it higher? Whatever the case might be, whether it's actually a pandemic or not, or whether the World Health Organization calls it a pandemic or not, what the facts are beginning to reveal about it is that we know that at least thousands of people have already died from it. It's been shown that the numbers have actually been quite depressed from within China, so chances are better that tens of thousands of people have already died from it. It's already been acknowledged of known cases that over 100,000 people globally have contracted it. And so now entire regions of China for months already, uh, the last couple of weeks, South Korea, Iran, And now I heard this morning, Italy has 18 million people in one region under quarantine. So globally, we have over 100 million people directly affected by the coronavirus under quarantine, meaning they can't come or go. They can't go to the store as they please. There's strict guidelines in place in quarantine. And in China, we can only imagine how desperate the situation is for the people under strict military quarantine there. 
And so all we know is that when we see what's happening in the world right now and dominating our news headlines, this is not over yet. But the point I want to make in underscoring this as a current reality of our world is that it perfectly fits the description of what Jesus said, pestilence in various places. It's widespread and it's an epidemic. It's a global disease. And it fits perfectly with what Jesus said. So now the caveat here is, of course, widespread pestilence such as this have happened before in world history. Spanish flu at the end of World War I being uh, the most catastrophic in recent history. And so these things have happened before. Just as wars have happened before, famines, earthquakes, all of these things have happened before. Jesus' emphasis in this, however, is that these signs, like birth pains, will continue to escalate and increase on a global scale until they reach their peak during the final tribulation hour immediately prior to Jesus' return. And so does the increase of birth pains match with what we're seeing in the world today? Well, I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. It matches. It fits the description. And so now we move on to the second set of more specific signs. Jesus says they will come like labor pains. The second thing he points us to in Luke 17, if I invite you to turn there with me now, Luke 17 verses 26 to 30, is Jesus compares the end, the last age, to the days of Noah. Verse 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so here, Jesus is telling his disciples and us in extension that his return will happen in a generation that will be living just like they were in the days of Noah and just like they were in the days of Lot. And so now two questions arise. The first is the obvious, well, how were they living in the days of Noah? What was the world like so that we know what to compare it to? What was the world like in the days of Lot? And the second once we've um, answered that first question, what was it like then, and we compare it to today, while well, we ask, do we find any similarities to how the world is living today, to how the world was living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot? So in answer, I will highlight only seven specific things to compare. There's many more, but seven specific things from the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and then compare them to our world today. The first of these seven is this. A global population explosion. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. If you want to stick your finger or a bookmark in there, we're going to flip back and forth a little bit to compare to the days of Noah and with what Jesus said in Luke. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, the chapter which is, of course, the, the account of the flood, it begins like this. When men began to increase in number on the earth. So it begins with highlighting there is an increase in population when the number of men began to increase on the earth. And so this first piece of evidence 
that is similar between our generation and Noah's generation is the rapid increase of the global population. Now, we often, I think, naively assume, and this probably comes from just like looking at children's storybooks growing up, but we, we naively assume that there weren't many people on earth before the flood. Like maybe just a few scattered villages here or there. Like globally, there probably can't have been that many people. However, when taking into account the people's exceptionally long lifespans, remember, at this point, they are living 800, 900 years is, that's probably average from what we read in the the biblical account. So living over 900 years old, you take that into account, then if you even just say that they were able to have children for a small percentage of those years, even modest population growth estimates reveal that in the centuries uh, preceding from the, the, the time span from Adam and Eve leaving the, leaving the Garden of Eden to the time of the flood, in that relatively short period of world history, some centuries, conservative estimates reveal that there could have easily been billions of people on earth by the time of the flood. Billions of people is, is not at all unrealistic that there were that many people on earth. And that's what Genesis 6 1 says when men began to increase in number on the earth. So think big. Why would God need to do a global flood if there was just a few people in the Middle East, right? This is a big flood for a big population. But scripture also says the earth was filled with violence. And so it's talking globally. This wasn't just a regional problem. Now, in the year 1800, there were approximately 1 billion people in the world. So in modern times, the year 1800 is when we hit that 1 billion threshold globally. That number doubled to 2 billion people in 1927. Took, you know, quite a long time, 127 years for it to double. Then that number doubled to 4 billion in a far shorter span of time. From 1927 to 1974, the earth added 2 billion more people. We have since then nearly doubled again to just under 8 billion people in the year 2020. And so we are the first generation since the days of Noah to experience such rapid population growth. And, and the estimates at this point are anyone's guess as to where the population is going in the next 20 years. It is growing rapidly, exponentially. And so, unlike what some scientists are saying, however, there is nothing wrong with an increase in population growth because first, God said to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, he said. Secondly, we know that God created loves and desires to save each and every last one of those nearly 8 billion people on planet earth. However, we also recognize that in a fallen world, with each of these new descendants, these new children born as descendants of Adam, as a sinner, unless there is repentance of sin and faith placed in Jesus Christ, as the population of the earth increases, so too does the world's sin, and it compounds its many problems. And so we see this parallel, population explosion, the days of Noah, modern time today. The second parallel is the increase of sin and wickedness of every type and stripe. The increase of sin and wickedness. Genesis 6 verse 5. 
The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. Then we skip ahead to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So now we compare that to our world today, and I would suggest it doesn't take a a rocket scientist, a sociologist, or a theologian to look at what is happening all around the world, and even right here in our own backyard of Canada, to know that sin and wickedness is growing. It is growing exponentially. It is growing at a staggering speed. Here, we could spend a whole nother sermon talking in depth about how our society has become untethered from God's word. And as we've untethered from the moral absolutes of truth that is in God's word, we begin to just go in every direction that our whim of desire takes us, and we can see where that is going. The fall of the sanctity of marriage was one of the first dominoes to fall. This came with the so-called sexual revolution, Free love, which quickly followed with abortion. Then the entire LGBT movement. And the subsequent infiltration and indoctrination of every single sector of society, calling evil good and good evil. And of course, the last obstacle to overcome being the church. And sadly, many of, church, many of those churches have also capitulated to the rising floodwaters of this movement. And sadly, in the height of all ironies, the sign of capitulation to this movement, to this agenda, is to wave the rainbow flag. Do you see how ironic that is? To wave the rainbow flag. Something that was given by God as a sign of his covenant to never again destroy the earth because of its wickedness was the rainbow. It's the sign of God's mercy. So now corrupt minds have taken the sign of God's mercy and have used it to flagrantly flaunt wickedness, something that God calls sin. Do you see where our world is going? And so now at this point, this is where I often get depressed and you might be with me on this. And, and you look around at what's happening and you, just, you start to feel a little just down and feel outnumbered by what is happening in the world. Like, Lord, like, this wickedness is growing and righteousness is decreasing. Like, where is this all headed? What am I going to do? And you start to just feel like, man, maybe I just need to crawl into a bunker and hang out here until the end. And when I start to feel that way and I was looking at this story, I thought to myself for a second, how did Noah feel? Think about that for a second. How did Noah feel? If there's billions of people on planet Earth, and God is looking through the entire Earth for anyone who's righteous, anyone who fears him, even the slightest bit, and he finds one man, one righteous man in that entire generation of possibly billions of people, how did Noah feel as he looked around at a world that was so corrupt, so vile, so filled with wickedness and violence that God's heart was filled with pain, and he said, I'm going to wipe it clean. How did Noah feel? Eight people, eight people survived the judgment that was to come. Only eight people believed God, got on that boat, and were spared. So what does that mean for us as believers? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end. Well, it it tells us that not everyone who says they're followers of Christ 
will truly follow to the end. Because in the days of Noah, there weren't many still holding true to the Lord. Jesus says, so it will be at the time of his coming. Will he find those who still have faith on the earth? He asked. And so for us as believers, what this means is we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our our minds. We need to dig deep on the foundations of Scripture to stand firm like never before. Because returning to Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus said of the last generation, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. My friends, don't miss this. Constant and increasing exposure to wickedness in whatever form will slowly but certainly numb our hearts. Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And so as we're exposed to this increase of wickedness, the, the, the effect is that it numbs our hearts, it saps our love for the Lord, his word, and if it's left unchecked, it will lead to falling away from the Lord entirely. I read a story about how certain birds around the Niagara Falls They will fly up to the falling water to get a drink from the mist. It's so thick in the air, if you've been there, you know this, that that you can literally drink out of the air, and that's what the birds do. However, in certain conditions during the winter, each time that those birds fly into the mist to get a drink of water, a little bit of ice will build up on their feathers, on their wings. And so it's much the same as it will build up in the right conditions on the wings of an airplane. And and if you know anything about that, as it builds up, all of a sudden you will reach a point where your lift or your weight exceeds your lift and you will plummet and crash and likely die. And so it's a serious thing to have ice building up on the wings. And so people have watched as some of these, these little birds swooping to the mist to get their drink, unaware of the danger, they go in for a sip and they go on for another sip, and they go on for another sip, until the ice on their wings has become too heavy. And suddenly, without almost any warning, they just plunge to their deaths, right down into the falling water. In the same way, repeated exposure to ever-increasing wickedness can form layers of ice over our hearts, over our love for the Lord. And so we need to heed the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.22 where Paul wrote, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain. Don't dabble in it. Abstain from it. Commit yourself to guarding your heart by guarding your mind, guarding your eyes, guarding ourselves from this increase of wickedness. So stand firm. Now on to the third comparison. People living for temporary pleasures. This was Jesus' primary point when he said that as in the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, marrying, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark, completely oblivious that their destruction was at hand. Now, when I think of eating and drinking and feasting and, you know, a marriage reception, I think of these things as good things, gifts from the Lord. But what Jesus is implying here is that these things, though they are gifts from the Lord, they're, they're not wrong. But in the final generation, most people will allow these temporary pleasures of life to become their sole focus, their sole priority to the extent that they will completely miss or ignore the many signs and warnings of God's coming judgment on the world because of its sin and rebellion against him. 
Now, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. And when we put that together with the fact that the ark took some 120 years to build, it's safe to assume that Noah was warning the people, preaching to them during that time, that judgment is coming. And talk about a a great illustration of what was coming. He's building a boat, right? It's like, hey, if I don't believe what I'm saying, why am I building this boat? And so 120 years, this living sermon is going on as Noah's preaching and he's building, saying a flood is coming. But did the people listen? Did they get on the boat? There's a classic story told of two pastors, and they're, they're standing on the side of the road, road holding up signs that read, Turn around, the end is coming. And so they're standing on the side of the road, and suddenly a car comes driving towards them, and so they hold up their signs. The, Turn around, the end is coming, and they shake them, and they hold them up urgently to make sure the driver can see them. And as the, as the, uh, the car is coming towards them, they can see the driver, he's looking at them, and suddenly... A big smile comes across his face and he laughs at them. Ha, crazy preachers and their signs. And the car doesn't let up and zooms right on past them. Suddenly behind them is the sound of a tremendous crash. And then the one pastor turns to the other and says, maybe we should change our signs to read bridge out. (laughs) Now for Noah... However it was that he presented his preaching, it's clear that his dire warnings to turn around, the end is coming, bridge out, whatever it might have been, they were not taken seriously. And just like the the driver of that car who just laughed, all those crazy preachers, they're always saying the end is coming. I'm not paying attention to that. The crash is coming. It is inevitable. And Genesis 6 verse 23 states, clearly what their result was. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals, the creatures that moved along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. Only Noah and his family survived. Eight people. Not another living soul responded to Noah's many warnings and got on the boat. And so when the flood came, it was too late. And that is sadly what we see happening today, for this generation has seen more signs and heard more sermons and more warnings than any previous generation in history, and yet still the majority of the world's nearly 8 billion people are ignoring the signs, ignoring the warnings, and carrying on Marrying, eating, feasting, drinking, doing what they would normally do as though nothing were coming. And Jesus' warning holds true for us as well. Do not allow the temporary pleasures of this world to be our sole focus and priority. Instead, focus your life on Him. Prioritize living for the things that are eternal and will last in the kingdom to come. For the things of this earth, no matter how good they are, how enjoyable they are, will not last. They will perish. Only the things of God will endure forever in the kingdom that is coming. Now the fourth parallel. To the days of Noah, to today, time is limited. Genesis 6 verse 3, 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. So from the time that God pronounced judgment and told Noah to start building to the day that the rain began to fall was 120 years. Now, we don't know exactly the day that the end will come, but we know for certain it's closer today than it was yesterday. And in Luke chapter 17, verses, uh, in Luke 17, 28 to 30, Jesus says that is just how it will be. Everything seems normal right up until the end. Just as it was in Sodom, everything was carrying on like before and suddenly destruction rained down. Verses 31 to 32, Jesus continued, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife could have been saved, but her heart was in Sodom, and she looked back. She looked back on everything she was losing in this life, and so she lost her life. Where are our hearts? What are we keeping our eyes on? Are we looking back at what we're going to lose, or are we keeping our eyes looking ahead at what we have to gain? For my friends, what we have to gain is eternal. And our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus. For only those who are prepared for what is coming, by holding firm to faith in Jesus Christ, only they will be saved. Just as the ark was the only means of salvation for Noah's generation, so too the Lord Jesus is the only means of salvation for our generation. And as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There was one door on the ark, and Jesus is the one door to heaven. Jesus says, I am that door. And thankfully, that door of salvation is still wide open. But please don't delay in getting on board. Time is limited. And for the same reason, please don't delay in urging others to get on board as well. All the signs are before us, telling us that the return of Christ is drawing ever closer. And yet the world is carrying on like nothing's going to happen. Let's not make the same mistake. Instead, let's follow Jesus' instructions in Luke 21, 28. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is drawing near. Look up. That is the good news, my friends. That is the good news of labor pains. No one wants to go through labor pains. I, I just look at Leanne in awe for what she's willingly gone through. And why is she willing to go through the pain of labor? It's because of the joy that is coming. Because it means that a child will be born. And when she holds that child for the first time, those labor pains are quickly forgotten, replaced by joy and so it will be for us. Yes, we have to go through the labor pains of this earth in this time of trouble. But what is coming will make it more than worth it, my friends. Because when we see Jesus coming down, we sang that great song, and the trump will sound. And we will meet Jesus, whatever we've been through. Even if we have to give our lives for the sake of Jesus' name, it will be worth it the moment we see his face. It will all be worth it. 
because the joy will far outweigh the sorrow. And so, let us do what Jesus said. In this age, as we see the signs increase, may we stand up and look up as we live our lives, as we go through our days, for the day of our salvation is drawing near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we anticipate your return with joy, but also with nervousness, with trepidation, because in our humanness, we fear the labor pains. We fear the trials. We fear what we may yet have to endure. But Lord Jesus, may we always keep our eyes fixed on you. May we look firmly ahead to the salvation that you have promised to all those who put faith in you, all those who enter through the one door of salvation, which is you. Guard our hearts from coldness. Keep us from being like Lot's wife who would look back, pining for what we lose. Oh Lord, help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on what we gain, which is eternal life forever in you. And so I pray, Lord, guard our hearts, set us firmly in this mind that whatever comes, we will stand firm and be among those who are saved. I pray even more, Lord, that as we stand firm, that like Noah, we would preach to those who have not yet come aboard. I pray, Lord, that we would do so with urgency, for the time is short. We don't know how much we have. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, bring others aboard, for this is your will. Use us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.